So while she's getting that ready, I, um, you know, a few weeks ago I talked about my, my water bottle and how obsessed I am with my water bottle. Well, a couple of friends actually sent me this reel. Um, an Instagram reel is like a, Instagram's version of a TikTok. It's like a really short video. And um, this guy was talking about his emotional support water bottle. And like when he forgets his emotional support water bottle, he starts to feel instantly parched and he can't think of anything else. And I thought, oh my goodness, this is like a widespread thing. So anyway, if, by the way, if you are on Instagram, you need to give Her God Speaks a follow because we have a lot of fun on there. So you get some of the serious side of me, but I also get to like let loose and be silly too. And it's super fun. So Her God Speaks on Instagram. I'm not on, I don't have time to do stuff on Facebook too. So I'm only on Instagram. So if you are there, give it a follow. It's fun. It's fun, right, Meg? We have a good time. Amy, Amy, yeah. So a lot of you are, yeah. So that's right. That's right. I am more of a weirdo than you think I am. I am. So anyway, um, let's see. I already, I opened in prayer, so we're just going to let that do it. All right. We're going to dig right in. If you uh, have your Bible in front of you, you want to open to John 15. And make sure I do have a listening guide for you today. So if you want to have that in front of you as well. All right, so who loves a good bookstore? Like a real, actual bookstore. Yes. I love me a Barnes & Noble. You walk in and, like, I just love the smell of the pages and the the ink and the just, the whole vibe is just, it's the best. Uh, So if you were to walk into a bookstore, one of the few that are still remaining, there's going to be a shelf that uh, is usually under like self-help or self-improvement or something like that. Uh, And that shelf will be full of books on the topic of how to be great, right? How to change, how to tap into your full potential as a human being. And these books generally offer one of three strategies. And I'm sure there's more, but these are kind of the ones that came to mind as I was thinking through uh, some of the the, the self-help genre. All right, so uh, some of those books offer a proven method or technique, right? So they have like five steps or ten steps. You do all these things, and you'll you'll end up with this result. You have other books that uh, are um, a little more morally charged, So some adherence to some kind of uh, morality, not necessarily a Christian morality, but but some kind of um, just being a really good good person, some kind of of moral uh, spin. And then, of course, there's plenty of books that offer a version of New Age spirituality. So getting in touch with uh, the earth or with an energy or um, manifesting out what, what you want to get back. So we have a lot of a lot of those things. Now, regardless of which category of kind of uh, method that you're looking at, in every case, with all of these books, I must strive to be the best me that I can be through some external compliance to whatever plan or method that author has put forward. The change has to start from the outside, and hopefully, over time, if I'm consistent, it will work its way in, and I will truly change and become the best me that I can be. If we are disciplined and motivated enough, we can truly experience a great measure of success that way. But that's a big if. (laughs) That's a big if. And what I am happy to do today is to present you with the truth that the gospel offers us a gloriously different path to greatness and personal transformation than all of those books lining the shelves under the self-help section at Barnes & Noble. And that gloriously different different path to greatness and personal transformation is called abiding. (laughs) It's abiding. So God's plan for change doesn't involve me striving to be the best me that I can be. It involves a relationship to Jesus in which his very life flows in and through mine. I mean, 
I'll never wrap my mind around that. That's amazing, right? So that this isn't about me tapping into my potential. I'm actually tapping into his. We change and bear fruit to the Father's glory, not through some kind of mechanical, external compliance with rules, not through checking a bunch of boxes. We bear fruit to the Father's glory through an organic, internal connection with Jesus himself. So, not through external compliance, but through internal connection. And uh, a part of the conversation that Jesus has with his disciples right before his arrest is all about this internal connection. He, he is going to, um, in fact, that's going to be the focus of what he's saying. We started to see this back in chapter 14. We talked about it last week. I want to just, by way of review, take you back to chapter 14, verse 18. All right, so Jesus is preparing them for his departure and he says in 14:18, I will not leave you as orphans. I am coming to you. And then, let's see, well, I'll keep reading, 19. In a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live too. And on that day, you will know that I am in my Father. You are in me, and I am in you. All right, so that, that's, he's already been focusing on this whole idea of this mutual indwelling and, and all of that. Now you skip down to uh, verse 23, and Jesus answered, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word, my father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. We'll, we'll dwell there, we'll remain there, we'll abide with him. All right, so he's He's comforting them with the truth that his, through his death and resurrection, he has prepared a way for them to experience his presence even in his physical absence. And this will happen through this mutual indwelling. I am in the Father, Father is in me, and we are in you, and you are in us, and, and we have all that mutual indwelling language. So he's already set the stage for that in chapter 14. Well, we all know every good truth should be followed up with a fantastic illustration, right? So you can really drive it home and we can get a word picture and we can see what this actually looks like to help us understand. And so that's what Jesus does. So he's, he's presented this truth that he can be present even in his physical absence through the mutual indwelling, right? And then he follows it up with this word picture of the vine, and the branches. So he's illustrating um, what we looked at already last week. Let me go ahead and read the passage, and then we'll walk through it. We'll kind of back up and, and pick it apart. All right, so I'm reading in John 15, verse 1. I'm going to read all the way through 17 so we can kind of get the big picture of what's going on. It says, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes and he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me and I in you, just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine you are the branches, the one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch and he withers. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want, it will be done for you. My father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. This is my command. Love one another as I have loved you. 
No one has greater love than this to lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants anymore because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything I have heard from my father. You did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce fruit and that your fruit should remain so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he will give you. This is what I command you, love one another. Let me remind you what I said last week. All right, so this whole farewell discourse, the whole thing requires a lifetime of meditation, all right? So hopefully, we'll peel back another layer today together. <laughs> we'll get maybe something new insight, but um, we will for sure not fully grasp the magnitude of what Jesus is conveying here, but we sure are going to try, all right? So <laughs> let's do our best. All right, so the metaphor is pretty straightforward. Jesus is the vine. He's the true vine. For those of you that studied uh, the book of Isaiah with me. You might remember Isaiah chapter 5. There's a whole beautiful poem about um, God's vine. And in that sense, it's Israel. And they produce rotten, stinky, nasty grapes. And so here, it's very significant that Jesus says, I am the true vine. Right? So Jesus fulfills and accomplishes all that Israel never could. Right? So just know. Not going to go into that. But that, that's, that's in the background of this as well. All right, so Jesus is the vine. The father is the vine dresser, the gardener. All right, he's tending to the vine and uh, is the one who takes care of the vineyard. And connected to this vine are branches, which represent Christ's followers. All right? Now, the whole purpose of the vineyard is to bear fruit. And not a little bit of fruit. There's continual reference to bearing much fruit. And that's really the whole thrust of this passage. Right, the, the fruit bearing. In fact, there are six references to bearing fruit or much fruit within just those first eight verses. It's like really into fruit, okay? By the way, something I had never noticed before, even with all of those references and the intense focus on fruit bearing, the disciples are never to abide, commanded to bear fruit. They are exhorted, commanded to abide. Mm. And then fruit, fruit bearing is the natural result of abiding. But the fruit is God's doing. So take that home and just chew on it. And it's really interesting. We're not commanded to bear fruit. We're commanded to remain connected to Jesus. Now, what is the fruit? Well, I think it's probably exactly what you think it is. It's, it's Christ's character formed in his disciples and those that they, they influence. Um, it's not simply checking all the boxes of what a good Christian person does. It's, it, it's, it's actually having the heart and mind of Jesus as we do those things, right? Uh, it's humility. It's compassion. It's kindness, meekness, generosity, passion for holiness, selflessness, love. Uh, Galatians 5, we have a whole list of fruit, don't we? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. So all of that. And those are all qualities of our Savior, <laughs> character qualities of Jesus. And so when we think about the fruit, um, that's the fruit. And, of course, if we're people like that, you know, we're, we're raised kind of in an evangelical environment. So we always think of the fruit as converts. It's definitely part of it because if you are embodying the character of Jesus in this world, do you think people are going to come to know and love Jesus because of that? Absolutely. <laughs> so that would certainly be part of the fruit as well. What's interesting is Jesus actually kicks off this word picture with a warning. It's, it's kind of subtle. He gets into it a little more in depth uh, a few verses later. Um, but in verse 2, we see some troubling words about some of these branches. He says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, the vine dresser, the father, takes away or removes. Hmm. Now, if that were the only reference to the unfruitful branches, we might just kind of read past it and move on. Uh, but it's not. Again, he's going to talk about them a little more in depth in verses 6 and 7. Um, some have tried to make this a little lighter and kind of explain it away by saying, 
that um, removes or take away actually means lifts up, that the translators have actually done a bad job at translating that. Um, and the reason they say that is because the Greek word can mean lifts up, right? And that sounds great. Those little poor little branches that aren't bearing fruit, God just comes along and lifts them up. It's, just, it's pretty. Like, it's a pretty picture, okay? I like that picture. But word many meanings, regardless of whether you're talking about Greek words or English words or French words or any kind of words, uh, they're never plug and play, right? So you'll, you'll look up an English word in dictionary. There might be three or four definitions. You can't just be like, hmm, I like that one the best. No, it's like, what is the context? What is, what is the context telling you um, the, the natural meaning is for, for that word in that situation? And... The natural meaning here, especially, man, if you get into verses 6 and 7, he's not, he's not lifting them up. He's not, like, patting them on the back, you know. Sorry, you're fruitless. Let me, let me help you. No, that's not, that's not what he's conveying here. Um, and almost every New Testament scholar will tell you that lifted up, while it sounds really sweet, it doesn't fit the context. Well, let's go ahead and look at uh, the reference that we have. I think it's in verse, yeah, it's in verse 6. I'll start in verse 5 so you can get a little lead in. So he says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit. You can do nothing apart from me. And then the, here's, the, here's the warning again, playing off what he's already said in verse 2. If anyone does not remain in me, he's thrown aside like a branch and he withers. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. All right, so verse 2, he says, every branch in me does not produce fruit. He removes Verse 6 fills that in and tells us exactly what happens to those branches, all right? Fire is a common symbol for divine judgment throughout the Old Testament. So this isn't, this isn't just pruning. This is, something, this is something different. This is something more, more serious. It's a, it's a permanent removal and casting away of the branches that don't bear any fruit. And this poses a little bit of a problem for interpreters because look again at verse 2. He says, every branch, two little words, in me, that does not produce fruit, he removes. Okay? That is problematic because if we say that a branch can be in Jesus and then removed and cast away and burned, <laughs> are we saying that a believer can lose their salvation somehow? Hmm. That's a really good question. When questions like that arise, the best thing we can do is allow Scripture to shed light on itself. So then we need to think, well, does John address anything like this anywhere else in the gospel? Thankfully, he does. All right, so you have two points on your listening guide there under this first, um, first section. And the first point is that John goes out of his way to affirm the eternal security of believers. I don't have time to read all of these passages with you, but... Um, in, in John 1, in the prologue, he talks about becoming children of God. In John 6, 35 through, uh, through 40, um, he, he talks again about how uh, God gives Jesus all that are his, and, and he doesn't lose any of them. Same with John 10, 27 through 29. All of those references, and you can take some time and read them on your own time if you'd like, but there's a very strong emphasis in the Gospel of John on how God gives Jesus those who are his, and he ain't going to lose a single one of them, right? Second point is that John goes out of his way to demonstrate that some of the followers of Jesus are only superficially connected to him, all right? Uh, the most obvious example is Judas, right? Remember chapter 13, there's a big emphasis on how, you know, Judas has been trucking along with the group, but things really take a turn, a really dark, dark turn. And he, he leaves, and we have that phrase, and it was night. Like, he, he, he goes into the darkness. He goes away from the light. Um, and think about it. G Judas did everything the other disciples did. He heard all of the teaching. He ministered in Christ's name, but later proved that he wasn't a true disciple. So there's a sense in which he was in the vine, but he wasn't really in the vine. All right? Um, we also have that passage in John 6 toward the end. Do you remember that? Jesus feeds the 5,000. Everybody's like, yay, bread. But then Jesus says something like, 
you need to drink my blood and eat my flesh, and then you can, you know, have, part, have, have you know, experience what, what I'm offering here. And it says at that point, some of his disciples no longer followed. And that's where he turns to the 12 and he says, are you guys going to leave also? And Peter says, well, where else would we go? You, and you are the words of eternal life. Um, but we have that. There were people who were following Jesus. They were disciples of Jesus. They were, in a sense, in the vine, but they weren't really in the vine because they end up turning away. Um, a similar situation in John 8. Go ahead and look at this one with me. Just want to remind you of it. Uh, John 8, look at verse 30. As he was saying these things, many believed him. And then Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. Well, then they have this whole conversation. They didn't like a lot of the stuff that Jesus said. And look at verse 44. Same people, same group, hasn't changed. He tells them. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. So he's, he's very, very extreme in his language. So they had, at one level, believed, but they hadn't believed, believed, right? And we kind of grapple with that a little bit when we walked through that chapter. So uh, this is just a consistent theme throughout the book of John that he's presenting us with multiple layers of, of belief, multiple layers of discipleship, multiple layers of commitment. And, uh, and so what we, what we see here is that this whole idea of abiding and remaining is very much tied up in, in, in the, the concepts of perseverance and steadfastness and being faithful to the end, continuing in his word. So it's so important that we understand Jesus is not after mechanical, external compliance to his teachings. His saving work is organic and it's internal. It's wrought by the supernatural work of the spirit that fuses our life with Jesus' life. So we're continually being changed from the inside out. And it's those who experience that who are kept forever. Those who are only supernaturally connected to Jesus are metaphorically cut down, thrown away, and burned. And throughout the book of John, you just stand back and you look at the whole book. There's followers and there's followers, right? There's disciples and there's disciples. And, and, and so we need to recognize that John's been weaving this all, all throughout his gospels. And we, we all have to answer the question, which one am I? Am I... We're really good at looking at other people and being like, I know which one she is. No, 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 that's not, no, no, we don't get to do that. But we do get to look in the mirror, right? And, in, and examine our own hearts and our own lives. And ask, okay, which, one, which woman am I? A follower or a follower? A disciple or a disciple, right? So beware of false abiding. You can do everything, quote, unquote, right, you can check all the boxes, and yet it still just be skin deep, okay? So, gotta love it when Jesus starts out with a big, fat warning. <laughs> all right, now that that's out of the way, let's really talk about what it means to, to abide and remain in Jesus. All right, so second, you, I think, turn your listening, no, 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 it's still on the first page. Still on the first page, uh, we're going to now look at what it means to dwell, to dwell in Christ's provision. All right, still in verse 2. All right, every branch in me does not produce fruit, he removes. But then it says, and he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. So Jesus there highlights the cleansing work of the Father. He, he cuts away the lifeless and he cultivates the living. And we'll talk more in depth about the pruning um, at the end today. Uh, what I want you to see here is that right out of the gate, the disciples are probably a little uneasy, right? So he's talked about chopping some branches off, and now he's talking about pruning the ones that need to bear more fruit, right? So they're probably thinking something like, 
What do we need to do to make sure we're truly abiding in the vine? Right? What do we need to do to make sure we're not, like, chopped off and thrown away and burned? <laughs> we don't want to be the branches that are, that are removed. We want to be the branches that are pruned. So in verse 3, Jesus reassures them. He says, you know, don't worry. You are already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. Right? So he's already done. He's already done a radical work in, in their life. They're, they're already clean. And this ought to sound familiar to us. Remember the foot washing? Remember that whole conversation that Jesus has with Peter? And Jesus says, if I don't wash you, you don't have any part with me. So then Peter's like, give me a shower, right? Like, just wash everything. Well, in verse 10, Jesus says, one who has bathed doesn't need to wash anything except his feet. But he's completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. And, of course, he was talking there about Judas. So we talked, when we, when we studied that passage, we talked about how they had already been cleansed through their belief that Jesus is who he says he is. I mean, these guys had staked their entire lives on the words that Jesus had proclaimed to them. So they were already clean. They already had the bath. They're already connected to Jesus, right? But they still needed those, those feet to be washed, right? So that was the metaphor back in chapter 13, we have a new metaphor here. You're already clean. You're already in me. You're already mine. But they're told they got to do something. In verse 4, what is it? Abide. They got to abide. They got to remain. They got to dwell in Jesus. So let's put all that together. And the reason I'm harping on this, it's a really important concept in the Christian life. Jesus is basically telling them, okay, you are already clean. Now live clean, right? You are already in me. Now live as though you're in me. So a good way to put it is be who you already are. Be in practice who you already are by his grace. I want to try to illustrate this for you. I want you to pretend that we take a field trip to the coast. We're going to go boating, all right? And we go to the marina and we have three options for boats that we can, can rent and enjoy together, all right? So we have a motorboat, we have a raft, and we have a sailboat. Now, the motorboat is appealing because it puts us in complete control of the power and the direction of the boat. We steer it, wherever we steer it, it goes, right? This is quite different from the raft, where we would just kind of sit back and get carried along by the wind and the currents to who knows where. Now, if you're in a particularly busy season of life, this might sound lovely. Like, I don't care where I go, anywhere but here. Just take me away, right? But that's kind of the, the idea of a raft. You just kind of float around on it. The sailboat is, is a little bit of both, right? It's kind of a, it's kind of a combination of those, those two things. Sailing involves dependence on the wind and the duty of drawing the sail and, and moving the sail so that you can catch the wind and head in the proper direction. All right, so the best sailor in the world can't go anywhere if there's no wind to draw him along. It's also true that the weather can be absolutely perfect, but if the sailor doesn't do his part, he's not going to go anywhere. In fact, he's likely to topple over, all right? Now, a lot of believers view the Christian life like a motorboat. It's up to me to make it work, right? We're just going to check all the boxes. We're going to do all the things. We're going to sign up for all the stuff. We're going to strive to do all the right things, determined to obey all the rules, determined to craft a life that will hopefully earn the approval of God and his people. Right? We're just busy, 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 busy. Go, 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 go. Strive, 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 strive. Work, 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 work. Okay? There are also a lot of believers who view the Christian life as a raft, right? They would say to the motorboat people, stop working so hard. It's grace, man. It's grace from start to finish. Doesn't matter what you do. He loves you no matter what. Let go and let God, right? This is very prevalent in a lot of stuff that's being put out today. I I have seen many, many, many people make the case that, you know, God doesn't ever command you to get up and have a quiet time. And they are right. He doesn't. 
And that's a beautiful thing. So if I miss my quiet time, God's not up there like, meh, 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 you terrible person, right? But do we really have to harp on the fact that we don't need to have a quiet time? Is that a good idea? <laughs> Is that a good idea to, like, keep telling people they don't actually need to be in their Bible every day? I don't think so, <laughs> right? That's just like, it's that raft mentality, you know? Give yourself a break. It's all grace, man, right? Very popular these days. But the biblical view of the Christian life is represented by the sailboat, right? The wind of God's grace must, must blow. We must be vitally connected to Jesus Christ, whose presence empowers us to move forward. That is the most important thing. You could be super Christian, but if there's not grace and empowerment and the Spirit working in your life, it is, you're not going to go nowhere, Right? There'll be no movement, no progress, no growth, unless we hoist the sails, right? So God is, the wind is blowing. The wind is blowing. But we've got to hoist the sails. There's not going to be any movement or progress or growth unless, growth unless we live out this identity as those who have been cleansed and connected to Jesus. You know, it is not cool to talk about spiritual disciplines anymore. But I'm telling you, you cannot catch the wind without them. <laughs> you just can't. We've got to hoist the sails. And I think that when we talk about be who you already are, understand that you're going nowhere apart from the grace of God and a vital connection to Jesus Christ. But you do play a part. You do have to be in the word, in prayer, in fellowship, in service. You've got to hoist the sails if we want any forward movement. One more illustration to help us grasp this concept, and then we'll really dig into what Jesus provides. Uh, my kids love to go to Adventure Island. I will admit I haven't taken them in approximately two years because I don't love to go to Adventure Island, but they do. Um, one of Landon's favorite things there is um, like playground, jungle gym type thing called the Splash Attack. I'm assuming it's still there. Again, this is old information, two years old. All right. Um, but at the very kind of top, sort of toward the front, but way up high, there is a giant wooden bucket that is continually being filled with water just from the water system that they have implemented there. And when that bucket reaches a certain level, it will tip over and it will dump a massive amount of water on whoever is standing below. And a lot of little splash pads and stuff have one of these. So maybe you've seen this kind of mechanism before. Now, if you want to receive that refreshing deluge of water, there's only one way you can do that. You do it by positioning yourself under the bucket. That's it. That's what you do. You can't be over there, and you can't be over there, and you can't be over there. You've got to be, like, right under it when it tips. Now, you don't have to work yourself to the bone to get wet. It's not hard to get soaked by the bucket. But you do have to be there. You do have to position yourself, do the work to just be in the right place at the right time. All right? And, and I think that's another great picture of how this whole abiding thing works. By communing with Jesus in prayer, marinating in his word, worshiping with his people, um, being a vital part of his church, all, all of those spiritual disciplines, right, they keep us in the right place place to then receive the lavish provision of Christ's life flowing through our life. We don't have to work hard to like conjure up Christ's life flowing through our life. We just have to be in the right place. We have to position ourselves under the bucket. And this is, this is really what I think this concept of abiding is. The, the word itself means to dwell, to remain, to stay. It's continually positioning ourselves to receive Christ's provision. So let's take a look at what he pours out of the bucket, because that's really the focus of the passage. What are the things that we get poured on us when we abide or remain or position ourselves um, under, under this bucket of Christ's generosity, all right? First thing, we've already talked about it, we receive his cleansing, all right? We see this in verses two and three. There's a couple levels to his cleansing, so he tells them they're, they're already clean because they have believed, but then the vine dresser continues to purify them um, through, through pruning, 
Again, same idea as back in, in chapter 13. You've already had a bath. You just need to have your feet washed. All right, and again, we'll look at pruning a little bit later. So he provides his cleansing. Another thing that gets poured out on us when we position ourselves in Christ, we abide in Christ, is his enabling. Look at this, verse 4. It says, remain in me and I in you. And notice that mutual abiding. It's not just one-sided. It's not just us remaining in Jesus. It's also he remains in us, which is really good news because if it was just me remaining in him, I'd be a little worried. <laughs> the fact that he remains in me uh, makes this a really uh, just robust, robust concept. All right, so remain in me and I in you just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches, the one who remains in me, and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. All right, so the main principle is this. We cannot bear authentic spiritual fruit on our own. Jesus is the one who does that, right? He does that in and through us. Now, really important we understand, Jesus is not saying that we can't accomplish great things on our own. We sure can, Right? People accomplish amazing things without giving a single thought to Jesus all the time, all the time. What Jesus is saying here is that we can't accomplish those greater works, those God things on our own, things that have lasting cosmic significance, things that will still matter billions and trillions of years for now, uh, from, from now. We need Christ enabling for that. We need his life flowing through our life, and that is exactly what he is promising here. He's saying, you stay connected to me, you abide in me, and you're going to accomplish some stuff that matters, right? Isn't that what we want? I just, we just want to live a life that matters. And in Christ, we do. We do live a life that matters. All right, third thing, Jesus also provides his words. Look at verse 7. He says, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. Now, we should think of Jesus' words as the whole of his message, which is virtually interchangeable with Jesus himself. Think about it. Like you and I, uh, we can say things that don't necessarily reflect who we are. We can kind of do the whole chameleon thing. You know, with a certain group, we talk a certain way. And with another kind of group, we talk another kind of way. And um, Jesus didn't do that. I mean, what he said is absolutely reflective of, of, who, of who he was. So his words abiding in us, I mean, it's, it's just about parallel to him, him abiding in us. And there's a profound connection to prayer. Did you catch that? If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. And this is a throwback to what we saw in chapter 14. Remember those greater works? You're going to do greater works. And if you ask my father anything in my name, I will, he's, he said the almost exact same words back in uh, chapter 14. And of course, we talked a little last week about taking out of context. This is like classic name it, claim it, right? <laughs> we have to consider the whole context, uh, the whole theme, which in chapter 14 and 15, it's not material wealth, it's not physical health, it's not career success or traveling mercies or any of the more temporal things that tend to consume our prayers. Not that it is wrong to pray about those things, it's just not what Jesus has in view in this particular passage. John 15 is about fruit bearing. That's what it's about, right? Authentic, spiritual, eternally significant fruit that glorifies the Father. So what Jesus is saying is that within that category of fruit bearing, we can ask whatever we wish and it will be given to us. So if we want people to see more love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control in your life, if you want to see more people come to faith and grow in their faith through your influence, according to Jesus, he's like, you ask your little heart out and the Father's going to do it. He is going to do it. But just like I pointed out last week, that's not what we are naturally inclined to pray for. <laughs> some of you are further along in your walk with the Lord than I am, so maybe you are. Maybe at some point it becomes more natural to pray for the, the spiritual proof. I'm not there yet. 
right? I'm still praying for the little details in my life to just work out and be easy, <laughs> right? I'm working on that. I'm working on that. I want to get to a place where when I pray, the very words of Jesus, the very words of Jesus, the desires of Jesus, the mission of Jesus is, is what, flows, what flows out. And that's, I think that's what Jesus has in view in that particular passage. All right, another thing that comes pouring out of the bucket of Christ's provision is his love. And this, this right here is mind-blowing. Look at, look at what he says in verse 9. As the Father has loved me. Scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate the intensity of the Father's love for the Son? A thousand. I'm glad you said it. Like, off the charts. Like, can we even... Can we even comprehend that I mean you get into like the relationship of the, the, the trinity it's like my, my brain starts to explode right okay so as the father has loved me I have also loved you Man. I mean I, I, don't, I don't even have a category for that kind of love and then he says remain in my love how do we remain in his love? Well, he tells us, verse 10, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. And be really careful there. He's not saying my, my, my love has strings attached to it. If you're a good girl, I'll love you. No, he's saying, if you want to keep experiencing my love, you've got to remain in me. You've got <laughs> you to live out my teachings. If you don't live out my teachings, the love doesn't change, but your experience of the love sure does change, right? If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. Now consider the metaphor that Jesus is using, all right? This love is not just Christ's affection directed toward us. It's actually Christ's affection flowing through us. Because he's talking about vines, relationship to a branch. So it's something we abide in. It's a part of the sap that flows from the vine into our lives, through our lives, and out into the lives of others. And Jesus specifically says that we abide in his love by keeping his Commands. He doesn't let us give us a list of commands here. You could go through the Gospels and you could certainly compile one. In the immediate context, he highlights only one command. In verse 12, this is my command. Love one another as I have loved you. And we focus a lot on how abiding connects us with Jesus. But it also connects us with each other, doesn't it? We're all connected to the same vine. And so this love is such, such a huge such a huge thing. Um, for a lot of years, the picture I had in my mind of abiding in Jesus was me kind of snuggled up on a comfy chair with my Bible and a cup of coffee, just reading and praying and learning and communing with my Savior. And that is certainly a part of it, a big part of it. My picture wasn't wrong, but it was really incomplete. All right, so here's a better picture of, I think, what Jesus would uh, would be conveying here. Say, I'm sitting in that chair. I'm communing with the Lord. I'm having this amazing Jesus time. And my seven-year-old wakes up early. And he is nasty and irritable and demanding. <laughs> and I then get nasty or want to get nasty and irritable and demanding, right? A little angry. <laughs> and so I stop and I I ask the Lord for help. <laughs> I ask him for strength. I ask him for that fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and all those things. And I, I go into Lana's room and with, with love and patience and kindness, I tend to his needs even though I don't want to, right? Which of those two scenarios, the beautiful quiet time, blah, angels are like dancing in the air, right? Or... My kid waking up early, messing up my time with the Lord, and me tending to his needs with love and grace and gentleness. Which of those things are truly abiding? Both. Both. And, and so we need to have that concept. Jesus says, you, you've got to, abiding with me isn't just sitting and reading your Bible all day. It's allowing the love and the words and the joy and all that of Jesus flow 
in us and then out of us to the people that are, that are around us. All right, what else does Christ supply? Well, he supplies his joy. Look at verse 11. This is such a happy verse. I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. Your translation says that your joy may be full. And this is, of course, attached to what Jesus has said about obeying his commands, right? Which I love because we don't naturally connect obedience with joy. Obedience is like, nah, right? It's like, nah, I don't, it's like, no fun. But Jesus is continually connecting obedience with joy because his commands aren't burdensome. Like, they're good. They're for our good. And they lead to, they lead to our joy. And that's why we can do these hard things Jesus calls us to do. And remember, let me remind you, Jesus is like, here's what you need to do. You need to die every day to, your, to yourself. And, and live, live for me. That's hard. <laughs> That's really hard. And how do we do those hard things? Because Jesus himself tells us that obedience to his teachings is the conduit of joy. And all you have to do is obey a few times, and you experience that joy, and you're like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That was hard. But the joy, the joy of obedience and surrender is good. It's good because it puts you in close fellowship with Jesus himself. All right. We see later in the passage that Jesus also supplies his friendship, all right? So we're thinking of what's, what's coming out of the bucket into our lives, friendship, friendship with Jesus. Wow. Look at verse 13. It says, no one has greater love than this to lay down his life for his friends. And of course, that's exactly what Jesus is about to do. He says, you are my friends. If you do what I command you, I do not call you servants anymore because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I've called you friends because I've made known to you everything I have heard from my father. So pretty normal for us to speak about God in a relationship with God in very casual terms. We're just kind of a casual generation, right? It wouldn't have been for John's original audience. All right, the fact that Jesus, who is God in the flesh, now brings the idea of friendship into the conversation is a really radical concept. Those of you that studied Isaiah with me, was there a lot of talk about being God's friend? No. <laughs> no, there wasn't. You just don't find that much in the Old Testament. You just don't. Well, there are two things that define friendship for Jesus. The first one is this sacrificial, selfless love that he has talked so much about and is about to demonstrate in the most profound way imaginable. We have that in verse 13. And then in verse 15, he focuses on the fact conversation is a really vital part of friendship. So sacrificial love and conversation. He says, I don't call you servants anymore because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I've called you friends because I've, I've told you stuff. I've told you what my father has told me. So I was thinking through this contrast between slaves and friends, and here's, here's some things that came to mind. Slaves are told, friends are informed, right? Slaves are given orders, friends are given insights. Slaves see the master's list, but friends see the master's heart. Slaves obey with a sense of duty. Friends obey with a sense of privilege. Right? It's such a beautiful contrast that he's drawing in these words. And this is so important because we can put all of our focus on busyness and serving Jesus that we forget the friendship with Jesus. We forget that he invites us into that. He doesn't want us to earn his love. He wants us to draw on it. And finally, Jesus provides his mission. Look at verse 16. It says, you did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you, appointed you to go and produce fruit, and that your fruit should remain so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. All right, so being Jesus' friend, being Jesus' follower, curled up in a chair with our Bible and a beautiful cup of coffee. Although, that is part of plugging into Jesus, but it's, 
It's active. It's more active than that. It's like you're going to go. You're going to go and bear much fruit. His work becomes our work. And Jesus didn't just sit around praying all day. That was a big part of what he did, but that's not all he did, right? I have on the back of your listening guide a little uh, portion of uh, the prayer of St. Patrick, which I do not have with me right now if somebody wants to bring up (laughs) the listening guide. I used to have it in the front of my Bible, but I got a new Bible, so I don't have it anymore. All right, now, aw, Frankie's like making a big sacrifice here. I'll give it back as soon as I read this. All right. So when we think of St. Patrick, you probably think of like, I don't know, green beer and Lucky Charms. But he was an actual, actual servant of the Lord, like who did a lot of work and wrote a lot of beautiful things. And this is a prayer attributed to him, St. Patrick of Ireland. And he says, Christ, shield me today. Christ with me. Christ before me. Christ behind me. Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit, Christ when I stand, Christ in the heart of everyone who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me. That's the kind of prayer you pray when you live chosen, when you live appointed, when Christ's mission becomes your mission. I think it's just a beautiful reflection of this whole idea of being in Christ and dwelling in Christ. All right, so here's my summary of what it means to abide in Christ. Abiding is, and I have this on your listening guide, it's living with his life, it's loving with his love, it's enjoying with his joy, it's praying and proclaiming with his words, and it's going with his mission. And our responsibility, our role is to keep showing up. It's to keep positioning ourselves for that deluge of his generous provision. All right? We just got to remain. We dwell. We abide. All right, so I want to close. We have a few minutes left. I want to go back to verse 2. I want to talk about this pruning, this pruning that the vine dresser, the vine dresser does. Um, just to read the verse again, it says, Every branch in me that does not produce fruit he removes, And he prunes every branch that produces fruit. So there's actually fruit on those vines, but he cuts it away. Why? So that it'll produce more fruit, all right? Now, most of you have, you've done studies with me before. You know that I'm a foodie. I love to eat. I mean, I love me a McDonald's cheeseburger, but I also like to get really fancy, all right? Like fancy food. And uh, my husband and I have discovered that if you want to really experience world-class cuisine, go where the vineyards are. Because where there is great wine, there is great food to go with it. All right, so whatever your views are on wine, the good food is with the wine. All right, so just pro tip, okay? So we have eaten our way through the vineyards of Napa and Sonoma. We have been to the Willamette Valley in Oregon. And we have even been to Mendoza, Argentina, which is like where all the Melbach comes from. All right? All the good mail back where it comes from. Uh, and whenever we've been to these places, we've gone at a time of year where the vines are exactly what you'd imagine. They're like green and full and grapes. Oh, we stayed at a bed and breakfast in Mendoza that had a little vineyard all around it. I mean, we just, every time we went back to our place, I just picked some grapes and eat them. And they were just the most delicious things you've ever had in your life. Just like fruitful. So much fruit. All right? So, uh, and, 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 and so gorgeous. I have never actually seen with my own eyes a vineyard right after it's been pruned. So I had to use the old Google search, right? And I, I Googled and looked at some images, and I'm, t- it's sad. It's really sad. And there will, actually, just like this depicts, all, all the leaves and, and any of the fruit that wasn't harvested, it's still on the vine. It's still perfectly fine or at least it seems to us it's perfectly fine, it gets chopped off. And I'm telling you, all that's left is like the wood, like the, the, main, um, the main vine that's connected to the ground. And it's so sparse that if I didn't know better and I saw it, I would assume those vines were dead. <laughs> I mean, the vineyard just looks dead. But actually, quite the opposite is true, Right? Soon winter will turn into spring, and the life that is flowing through those vines will burst forth, forming new branches 
and new leaves and new fruit, and it'll be way better having been pruned. You see, when the vine dresser pruned away what looked on the surface to be good, good fruit, he knew what he was doing. And I have this written on your listening guide. It's another one you kind of need to go home and chew on for a while. Not one thing is cut off that wouldn't have been a loss to keep and isn't a gain to lose. Not one thing is cut off that wouldn't have been a loss to keep and isn't a gain to lose. Now, a little caveat. I want to be careful here. Um, I believe it would be going too far to say that God causes the painful things in our life for the express purpose of pruning us. People like me with a really high view of the sovereignty of God can, can kind of sometimes be guilty of making it sound like that. We need, to be, we need to be really careful mainly because that's way too simple. It's way too simple. The reality of suffering and pain in a fallen world is much more complex. It's much more nuanced. And it's much more mysterious than that, honestly. And if you think about it, whether you're in Christ or not, suffering happens, right? It's part of being human. It has nothing to do with whether you're a believer or whether you're not a believer. It just has everything to do with, like, you live in this world, right? And so I don't think the pruning is the inflicting of the pain because everybody experiences that, regardless of whether or not you believe in Jesus. I think the pruning is tied up in what's accomplished through the pain. So you have a believer and you have an unbeliever. They can experience the same tragedy. One is going to have a very different experience and outcome, right? Right? But I think what Jesus is doing here is he's communicating to his disciples and, and to us the deeply comforting reality that if we remain connected to Jesus, come rain or shine, come good times or bad times, the Father continually labors for our ultimate good. He labors for a God-glorifying fruitfulness that is well out of proportion with our natural talents, abilities, or even desires. And sometimes it looks and feels like he's darn near killed us. And here's what we can know when we've been cut down to a nub. For the believer, nothing is for nothing. Nothing is for nothing. Winter always turns into spring. And the very life of Jesus flowing through those vines eventually bursts forth, forming new branches and new leaves and new fruit. But there's one more thing I want you to know about pruning. And this is such a, such a comfort to me. I think I heard this. I mean, I'm sure tons of people have written this. I first heard it, I think, in a Tim Keller sermon. He talks about how the vine dresser's hand is never closer to the branch than when the cutting takes place. And this is important because you can have a variety of experiences in suffering. Sometimes in suffering, you feel this sweet fellowship with the Lord that you've never felt before. And it's just like you can feel him drawing near. You can feel his closeness. But, but then there are also there, there are experiences with suffering. And I don't know what makes the difference. I don't know why it's this way. But sometimes you don't feel him at all. You're just kind of numb or you, just, you don't see his hand working and... You can't put your finger on why. You're still reading the Bible. You're still praying. You're still going to church. I mean, you just, you, I don't, it's like anybody's guess. But what a comfort to know that when the, when the cutting is taking place, when the pruning is taking place, the vine dresser is close. He has to be. He has to be to, to accomplish that work in us. I want to close with an excerpt from this book, The Pleasures of God by John Piper. Normally when I bring a book, I'm like, you need to buy it and read it. It's so good, all right? This book is tedious, all right? And it is deeply, deeply, unapologetically Calvinistic in its perspective. So if you want that, go to town. I mean, it's genius. John Piper is an, an amazing thinker. Um, 
but I will tell you, I didn't get through it. I got through like halfway. I think I stopped after this. I was like, you know what? That was worth the price of admission. I'm done. Okay. <laughs> but this is so good, and I feel like it's such a great, such a great place to land the plane. All right. So again, I'm reading John Piper's The Pleasures of God, Meditation on God's Delight in Being God. It says, the upshot of this is that God is a mountain spring, not a watering trough. A mountain spring is self-replenishing. It constantly overflows and supplies others. But a watering trough needs to be filled with a pump or a bucket brigade. So if you want to glorify the worth of a watering trough, you work hard to keep it full and useful. But if you want to glorify the worth of a spring, you do it by getting down on your hands and knees and drinking to your heart's satisfaction until you have the refreshment and strength to go back down in the valley and tell people what you found. Because the way to please God is to come to him to get, not to give, to drink, not to water. He is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God delights not when we offer him our strength, but when we wait for his. I read this to you because I think it gets to the heart of why, out of all the metaphors Jesus could have chosen, he chose this. He chose a vine and branches connected to the vine because, listen, branches don't labor. They live. Branches don't plug away. They plug in. They don't hustle. They hang. <laughs> they don't grind. They grow. God delights not when we offer him our strength, but when we wait for his. And in Christ, you never wait long. You never wait long. And so allow this metaphor to it doesn't let us off the hook. We we have we have work to do, but we work from rest. We work from rest. We rest in Jesus, and as we rest in Jesus, fruit starts to grow. Fruit starts to grow. It's the cool, it's the coolest thing ever. It's the coolest thing ever. I love it. All right, that's all I got for you. Any questions? Any questions about the homework or this passage? All right, I know it's got to sink in. Again, like I always say, if a question comes to mind, jot it down and bring it to me, and I'll try to answer it. All right, let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for uh, this metaphor. And I have a, I always have a hunch whenever I read this or teach it that I'm like, barely scraping the surface, <laughs> that there's actually so much more uh, to this, this image, this word picture of, of, of branches abiding in a vine and the, the fruit, the fruit that, that comes and the freedom that comes. I mean, the whole idea of asking whatever, whatever we want and the Father doing it, and that's, that's a profound thing. And so, Lord, I pray that as we leave here and we keep chewing on this and of course we try to live it out we 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 we, we seek to to abide to stand under that bucket and and wait for you to just wash us with all of these beautiful things that you provide i, I just pray that you would strengthen us for that that you would continue to deepen our understanding of what it means to abide what it looks like and uh, we thank you we thank you that the very life and love and joy and peace of Jesus flows in us, through us, and can then flow out into the world where you have placed us to be witnesses of, of your glory and of your goodness. And so I pray that as we leave here, that is exactly what would happen um, in, our, in our neighborhoods, in our jobs, uh, as we're in mom groups, and all the things. Lord, that we would, um, we would be beautiful representatives of our Savior. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Yes. Branches. Branches don't labor, they live. That one? 
Okay. Branches don't labor. They live. Live. They just live and grow. Yeah, they live. They don't plug away. They plug in. They don't hustle. They hang. They don't grind. They grow. Did you get it? Okay. All righty. You guys have a few minutes to talk. I'll come back up here when it's time to, in about 15 minutes, time to close this out.